Alright Bizzlecasters, welcome to Bizzlecast 79, the final and deepest dive into Rogue One, a Star Wars story. I'm going to get right into it with a whole bunch of stuff that people haven't talked about so much. I'm going to go second and third level on some character and filmmaking stuff. So we are going to start on the planet of Jeddah, which I can't believe people aren't talking about more. We are seeing people, the fucking home of the Jedi, that's where the name Jedi comes from, is Jeddah. You know, we see a giant statue straight out of Lord of the Rings. With the kings of Gondor, you know, uh, giant statues. We see the the fallen giant statue of the Jedi, you know, in the dirt, in the sand, uh, on Jeddah, ha- having been brought down long ago, uh, or, you know, actually not that long ago, but it feels like long ago with what's now the Empire. It used to be the Old Republic. And from there, we, we bounce around to all sorts of planets in the galaxy. But on Jeddah, we get, you know, as close to a children of men type scenario as we're going to get. I mean, you have tanks through the streets they're stopping random people killing random people throwing you know people into trucks with masks over their head holding the whole town hostage and then the town rises up which is part of the story and how we meet Chirrut and Bays and you know and that whole crew and you know th- them being pulled into Saw Gerrera's more radicalized rebellion, which they then transmit uh, to the Rebel Alliance in subtle and not so subtle ways later, maybe without realizing it. But they're brought into this you know major skirmish over what's left of the Jedi home. And it hasn't been commented enough that this is the death of the Jedi home. They blow it up. They blow it to bits. And uh, the way they bring down the towers and the way they talk to the people over the loud uh, speakers and the microphones and are threatening people, and you know they're going to kill them all anyways, regardless of whether they help the Empire or not, which just fuels the rage of the rebels and inspires them if you will to 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 do what they do and and last stand and then you know for all of the remaining rebellion and probably a few imperial soldiers at least getting blown up by the death star just like the end of children of men when they're floating away in the water and they see the fighter jets fly over the refugee camp and just nuke the whole place and just bomb it to ship in a pg-13 star wars movie people we're not going to get that again for a long time so i hope you enjoyed it because that's the reality of this world if you look at pictures from syria right now that's exactly what it looks like yes it's not blasters and they're not in the goofy stormtrooper gear but this is exactly what's going on and disney deserves tons of credit for pulling this off in, in a you know quote-unquote family holiday PG-13 movie, and if this movie underperforms, it's not only going to be because it's characters we don't know, and it's not only going to be because it's characters that we can't follow into the future, because they all die, spoiler alert, but it's because they portray war realistically throughout this movie to the extent that they can under the rating and under the umbrella of the Star Wars universe, and I think that is what George Lucas loves so much and why he specifically, you know, publicly reacted so positively to this film because george lucas is an active liberal you say what you will about him but he is an active liberal he understood that this was a war movie in the best sense possible 
in portraying war and showing how horrifying it is at the same time. My next point is going to be Diego Luna, who, you know, came to my attention in Itumama Tambien, the first movie of Alfonso Cuaron, and he has been in a lot of films, and he's been a producer of a lot of films, uh, mostly from Mexico or, um, or from the greater Latino world. He has a number of acting credits. He was in Milk. He was in a bunch of stuff, but to me, Diego Luna is the glue of this movie. He has the most screen time. He's the most complicated character. He has the most believable and dramatic and intense and relatable and, you know, exciting but disturbing arc of any of the characters. I mean, he is the lead of this movie. I understand why they promoted Felicity Jones as the lead of this movie and her familial relationship is very compelling and she's awesome, but he's the true leader. He he lets her lead at times, but he's really the passionate one. He's the one who's seen it all and channeling kind of the Mexican revolutionary thing is really effective here, you know, because with his character, Cassie and Andor, things get ugly. They get really ugly. And he's, you know, killed. We see him kill, you know, or attempt to kill numerous, you know, good people on screen for the cause. And what I couldn't help thinking to myself Uh, more and more with each watching is he's the reverse Han Solo. Han Solo leaves the cause because he's afraid of it, because he says he has to pay off his bills, maybe because of his feelings for Leia, of that slightly retconned. I don't know if Lucas knew what Han Leia could be uh, before he started working on Empire, you know, because he was a coward, whatever. Han Solo comes back in the end, realizes he needs to serve the cause and help his friends. And in the end, Diego Luna's character, Cassian Andor, comes to the same conclusion, but from a completely different way. He's the sort of reverse Han Solo. You know, he's the bizarro Han Solo. He's the one who's serving the Alliance to such a degree that he loses himself, he loses his morals and his ethics, he loses his way, he loses his compass, and he comes to realize that what he's fighting for is the cause as so dramatically delivered in the final moments of life by Saw Gerrera, played amazingly by Forrest Whitaker, who I should never have doubted would be even better in this movie than I thought, but really was. Save the dream, you know, save the cause, save the dream. And uh, and Cassian takes that to heart. You know, there's so much subtext in this movie, you just got to read into it. I think in his brief moment of interaction with Saw, which is not shooting him and trying not to get shot and taking, you know, Jin away and, and saw letting him take Jin away. I mean, all these little things, you know, he is starting to build up to it. And so, you know, some people said, well, he had just gone from being angry at the whole situation, at, you know, uh, he's supposed to kill, uh, Galen or so and then not, and then Galen dying anyway, because of the rebels and him being angry at everyone and blah, 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 blah. But it's clear from his performance that, you know, he was already taking it to heart and he was lashing out 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 of a sense of guilt and shame and and uncertainty. And I love that, you know, Felicity Jones's character, Jen Erso, get you know reads him, you know, the rights, you know, reads him the riot act, if you will. 
and then less it simmer, and then he just comes to it on his own when he processes the information. You know, that's the thing. You know, he, from the very first shot, and this is why you need to do rewatches. When you see him kill the guy at the beginning, who's supposedly a friend and an informant, he's really saving the guy's life and preventing him from being tortured, if you really think about it. But even if that's not the case, he looks very tormented by having to do it. And so. He's been wanting to do the right thing and not beholden to a certain, you know, administration or bureaucracy, even if it's the rebels and the supposedly right cause from the beginning. And so he's ready to go when, when the shit hits the table. And Diego Luna as Cassian Andor, I don't know if he's going to go down as legendarily as he should if you're a Star Wars fan, but he is every bit as believable and, um, you know, kind of modern, but still within the Star Wars context as any of the original cast. I mean, he really feels like a rebel from around the time of New Hope. Um, And that will lead me to my next point, which is something about this movie that people are not giving enough credit to is that this not only doesn't screw up continuity with the original movies, but actually helps explain a lot of things in much more rational ways. And, and this movie didn't have to do that. You know, this was a credit to Lucas. And I th- again, I think that's why Lucas was heaping, uh, has been heaping praise on Gareth Edwards and the makers of this movie is that, you know, Lucas didn't mean to have so many loose ends. Nobody cares because the original Star Wars movies are amazing. But this one really you know, ties together a lot of uh, loose ends. And the the main one, of course, is the Death Star and how convenient it was that with a small rebel force, they could shoot a torpedo and blow up the whole Death Star. When the reality was, it was an extremely complicated effort over many decades for one scientist to implant the, the flaw and then pass it on, you know, to the next generation of rebels in order for their tiny little chance that they would be able to exploit the flaw. And, and they were, of course, able to do so with Luke using the force. You know, that's an amazing explanation uh, of something that made no sense in the past, which didn't even need to be explained. And they did it. And this is what's brilliant about this movie. They didn't explain that bit of, of Death Star mythology because they felt like they needed to wrap up loose ends. They did it because it worked for their story. And it happened to have a nice side benefit of wrapping up loose ends. But for me, it's the smaller things. For example... In this movie, we see a ginormous rebel fleet, you know, go to Scarif in order to get the Death Star plans. And a lot of them die, and some get away. But then we see episode four, you know, New Hope, the original Star Wars, and in the final scene where they launch from Yavin 4, before uh, Yavin 4 gets blown up, and they gotta take on the Death Star, and they've got, like, what, a dozen, a dozen and a half X-Wings? And you're going, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, it makes an exact sense. And why in Hoth, in post-Hoth, and Empire, and then in Return of the Jedi, where they have a huge fleet again, the Rebels generally have a huge fleet. So why don't they have a huge fleet in New Hope? Well, you could say it was the first movie. They didn't have enough budget. They hadn't thought it through, blah, 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 blah. No, it's because they risked everything and lost most of their fleet getting the plans. Because they knew if they got these plans, based on what they found out about what the plans came contained that they would only need a few dozen you know small ships to get in there to blow up the fucking death star and so the risk was worth it and that's what the the calamari commander 
uh, Admiral, oh, I'm forgetting right now, not Admiral Akbar, the Admiral in this movie, who I think we assume dies because, you know, I mean, Vader boards the ship and, and kills everyone on it, so we have to assume that, that, that the Admiral dies on this. Um, but the point being, he realizes that, you know, sacrificing 80-90% of the fleet in order to find the weakness of the Death Star was absolutely worth it. And although the beginning of Empire, most of Empire doesn't go well for them with Hoth and onwards, they are able to regroup the fleet to the point where they can build one back for Return of the Jedi, take out the final Death Star and the Empire, or at least the Emperor and Vader. And, you know, that explains all of this. It explains where Leia comes from, how she was so close to the situation. Admiral Raddus, excuse me, Admiral Raddus is the Mon Calamari uh, commander who's even way more bald than uh, Admiral Akbar. I mean, Admiral Akbar, as soon as he realizes it's a drop in uh, Return of the Jedi, wants to, you know, go, go in full retreat. And, and Billy D, as Lando, has to tell him to stay and fight. You know, this guy is ready to go from the, the council meeting on out. As one of the great twists of this movie is, you know, it's not like, oh, we hear there's an uprising on Scarif from Rogue One. Well, let's rally the fleet. Nope. Admiral Raddus already has his entire fleet up in the air with the capital ships, which is the most important part. You know, and so they just have to launch the X-Wings. And this is another great continuity tie with the original series, but also with the video games in the extended universe, which is, if you've only seen the original movies, but you're specifically familiar with the very, you know, first movie, New Hope in 1977... You've got X-Wings for the good guys and TIE Fighters for the bad guys, okay? I don't need to explain that, but if you watch Return of the Jedi, there are four different types of rebel, uh, you know, one-man starfighters, as well as all the capital ships. And you've got multiple types of the Empire ships. This may not seem like a big deal, but if you're a huge Star Wars nerd, you get into this stuff. Now, the disappointment from a space battle standpoint, and yes, this is important to me, I loved Return of the Jedi growing up because you had drama, you had comedy, you had adventure, but in the end, you had a giant space battle as well as Luke and Vader and the Emperor, you know, doing their thing on the the Death Star. And when you start playing these games in the early 90s where you're playing A-Wings and B-Wings and Y-Wings and these other wings, you know, ships that are X-Wings. You want to see them on screen and you see them in Return of the Jedi and it's such a cock tease. And then in The Force Awakens, which is 30 years later, both in real time and in mythological time, it's X-Wings and TIE Fighters again. It was almost like there was a mandate, like, you know, we're going to get creative on the ships, but for this first one, it's just going to be X-Wings and TIE Fighters. And the space battles were really disappointing for the most part uh, in Forest Awakens. I mean, the the, the sort of one-shot, quote-unquote, with Poe, uh, which which Finn is watching isn't quite sure it's Poe, where he takes down like you know thirteen Tie Fighters and a bunch of stormtroopers on, on Maskinata's planet is glorious and is definitely the best single shot of space combat um, ever, and even better than anything in Rogue One because there's a lot of cuts in Rogue One. So Rogue One said, okay, we're gonna you know 
throw shit on the wall in terms of the capital ships. We're going to have the frigates and the corvettes and the calamari ships. I mean, Gareth Edwards clearly played TIE Fighter in X-Wing when he was a kid. He's probably five or ten years older than me, but still. He, you know, he understood that these different capital ships from Return of the Jedi that were then made very important in the computer games were important in the mythology. And so he brought them back and he said, well, but I, I can't have A-Wings and B-Wings and stuff because those are inventions for Return of the Jedi, you know, we're operating in an early time. So what one ship can I bring in other than X-Wings, you know, that will be interesting to people? And that ship is the Y-Wing. And what's great about the Y-Wing is it is slow, it is not maneuverable, it has heavy shielding and heavy armor, it can take a lot of damage, but it does not turn very well. And the number of TIE fighters ganging up on a Y-Wing is absolutely deadly, you know, whether you've played the miniatures game or played the video game or the computer game. But they've got bombs that they can drop in planetary situations. And here, you know, the the proton bombs or whatever the hell they were dropping was was really important in terms of probing the uh, uh, the shield gate, as, uh, as the Admiral was talking about. And, you know, again, it was just brilliant use of extended universe stuff. Uh, I mean, I think the computer games in the early 90s are considered somewhat canon, at least in just in terms of the ships that they introduced. But, you know, they, they didn't have to do it. They could have just had X-Wings drop bombs. Nope, they had Y-Wings. Uh, actually, twice. They had Y-Wings in... Edu when they were going after uh, Jin's dad, and you could see the bombs dropping. But they also had the disruptor torpedoes or whatever they're called. You know, they had like ion um, ion disruptors. Basically, if you played the old computer games, if you were the rebels, the only way to take out the Empire with their giant star destroyers was take out their shields at least temporarily, then fire some you know ion cannons or torpedoes or whatever, and it could actually disable. It was almost like an EMP. If you've seen the Matrix movies, you know where they disable the Squiddy bot with the EMP. It's like dropping an EMP. And they dropped some EMPs on the Star Destroyer and it disabled it and not allowed the fucking Hammerhead Corvette to crash it into another Star Destroyer and destroy the gate. Which, by the way, people... It's exactly what would happen if a giant capital ship above a full-on planet or giant moon were to lose power. It would be the gravity well of the planet would suck it down immediately. They're having to expend tons of energy to stay above that planet because of the gravity well. And so what they did was they timed it, I think is the idea, so that it was directly above the gate and directly above the planet. And so it blew up the whole goddamn thing. But that's straight from the games. I mean, it's little touches like that. You don't need to have seen everything but you watch the guardians of the galaxy final battle and you realize you know what what's great about it are the character moments and this was no different but there wasn't really a lot of thought other than the the, the initial fireball thing that they did uh with the, with the ravager ships were as creative in terms of the actual space battle and this is space battle porn i mean you know you're either into space battle porn or you're not you know this shit turns me on as a movie watcher if you're not into it then maybe it doesn't stick with you 
but it was so excellently executed by someone who so clearly got, you know, the source material. All right, so enough about space porn. We'll move on to some character stuff here. I think we can agree Ch- uh, Chirrut and uh, or Chirrut and Bays are awesome, and we're definitely going to see comic books and probably books and other spinoffs with those two having adventures together of the Guardians of the Will, uh, which is a very Nazi-esque uh, title, but one which George Lucas was been playing with for many decades uh, in an attempt to reclaim the notion of will you know he had to love the uh cheroot you know no look shots like he's hawkeye in the original avengers actually even though he's blind he has a uh, i guess because he's blind he has a better reason to uh make use of the no look shot and have it be believable who cares the practical effects are, are so good in this movie in terms of the aliens and the ships i, I bring this up briefly in my review with the uh, blues leader aka adam deets but this was the first space movie since the original trilogy that i really felt like i was watching models as crazy as the maneuvers were that they were making and the ways that they were moving the camera around and you knew it's cgi but because of the way they had so much texture and usage and dents and muck on them and all the things i'm always talking about it just felt like real practical models and there's a great story about gareth edwards about the Ewings, and actually, me and my dad talked about how the Ewings and the various transports, where they're constantly jumping on and off ship, you know, while the ship is hovering midair, it's really seamless. It feels like it's a real ship they're jumping onto, and indeed, it was, you know, a giant ship model that they were jumping on and off of at times. And Gareth Edwards was asked about, you know, people who visited the set at times. And he said that Peter Jackson did. It was a great honor. And it happened to be when they were trying to pull off one of these Ewing, uh, you know, escapes or unloadings. And PJ and, you know, Hobbit PJ self, you know, Lord of the Rings version would have never said this. But something happened to him between Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit where he said, oh, you should just do this as CGI. It would be much easier. And Gareth Edwards basically you know said to himself no i want to do this practically as long as this is going to take we're going to find out a way for them to jump on and off the ships it's going to look way more real and indeed it did the ship modeling was beautiful i can't understate just the physical perfection of of the movie you know it was almost too good there's so few flaws in there so i'm just going to leave you with a few points here that i've been brought up and we're gonna wrap up rogue one for now i might see it again i might not but i think this is probably the last i'll i'll talk about it i think you know from a dramatic standpoint there's so much death in this movie of both main characters secondary characters tertiary characters and you know even red shirts uh but they're all understated and even when it's Jin's dad or even one of the main characters you know, they don't linger on it too long. And I'm not someone to call for death in movies, but you have to set the stakes. And when you have a bunch of important people die, what it does is force you to not be melodramatic with the deaths. And I think that's, you know, something that cannot be stressed enough. When you're building up the whole movie 
you know, like the Avengers movies or the Cap movies or, or, you know, any of these movies and, you know, as if people are at risk. And in the end, someone dies or almost dies. When you have Clark Gregg die as Agent Coulson in the first Avengers, they build essentially the entire second half of the movie or the final third of the movie around, you know, Clark Gregg's death. They make a huge deal about it. And we didn't, you know, handles it with a plum. But for the most part in these movies, you just linger on it, you know, the Luke finding out that Vader's his father and then, you know, his dad dying. And actually, if you look back at Return of the Jedi, one of the things I love is how quickly Vader, once he's turned back to the good side uh, and saved Luke and killed the Emperor, how quickly he dies. Uh, it's mirrored almost exactly by Jin's speech to her dad that she's going to save him and he's going to be okay. Um, the speed at which they, 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 they die. And, uh, that's something Lucas has done pretty well overall. I mean, in the prequels, the death of Anakin's mom is brutal. Um, and the prequels in general, he reverts to a lot of bad habits, but in the original movies, death happens suddenly. And, and even if you get a final word in like Yoda, it's, uh, it, it's restrained and they followed that here. You know, Han Solo didn't even get a final word, I suppose. And so the great tradition of dramatic, but understated Star Wars deaths is preserved here. It's little connections, too. I, I really thought Diego Luna and Felicity Jones had amazing physical chemistry. Like, I was getting turned on by their physical chemistry. I mean, you know, I'm turned on by Felicity Jones, all right? I, I, I don't know if it's come across in a thousand podcasts about Star Wars, but the bottom line is I find Felicity, uh, Felicity Jones ridiculously uh, attractive uh, but in this setting, with with her acting performance and taking on this role, I, I was almost never distracted by it, you know, despite her being a model. They just muck her up. They put her in rags. They cover her face in dirt. They put crazy eyeshadow around her eyes, although that actually uh, helps her attractiveness as if she needed help. You know, she makes fun of herself for her teeth, which is a very English thing. I mean, everyone from, you know, her to Eddie Redmayne to a thousand other, you know, English actors who are attractive all have the teeth. Uh, but it's, it's very cute in her, uh, in her case. Um, but, uh, you know, her, her and Diego Luna really felt like a physical match. Uh, whereas Finn and Ray felt more like a friend match, which I think is what they're going for. Finn and Ray may end up together, but they did not want to give off that vibe too strongly in the first movie. And I think JJ, JJ did a great job, uh, similar to, I would say, uh, Gamora, um, and Quill in the first Guardians movie. I was hoping they weren't going to force that issue, but it seems they are, which I'm not thrilled about. Or, uh, Kirk, once he realizes that Ahura is Spock's, uh, woman in Star Trek and kind of backs off and is just scared of her, <laughs> even though she's, you know, technically a subordinate, but he'll do whatever she says, as we see. You know, gave off that sort of vibe. Uh, had amazing chemistry. Jin and, and and Cherut, uh, you know, he's so drawn to her and, and her to him. You know, the forest connection, the crystal, 
and, and and Baze even calls her little sister in the end. I mean, they really adopt her. They all adopt her. That's the thing. I mean, that's what makes the Rebels great. Is the Empire is all about creating depersonalized situations where you just kill people or don't based on practical calculations. And the Rebels are all about helping people or not based on, you know, moral and ethical calculations. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And that's why, you know, good guys killing good guys for the Rebels is different ultimately. It, as bad as Diego Luna thought, no, I should say Cassian thought what he was doing was and killing informants and stuff, it was coming from a better place. And the results of his actions and saving the universe show that that is indeed the case. So I could go on. K2SO, don't get me started. He kills in every screening. Alan Tudyk, I could not be happier for. I mean, everything he's got through in his career or hasn't gone through you know, completely wiped away by, by the the greatest CGI performance, uh, motion cap performance since Gollum, I think, just in terms of you know voice work and and body work as well. Uh, I mean, audiences, no matter how big or small the audience was, what day of the week, where I was seeing it, it was dying at the K two S O lines, and so God bless him. So okay. Let's wrap it up here. Darth Vader. Um, speaking of Darth Vader, I mean, it's not particularly deep, but just hearing Kevin Smith drop a million F-bombs in love of this movie uh, is great. With his sidekick, uh, search, you know, Kevin Smith's review of, uh, of Rogue One, he, he tweeted immediately how much he loved the movie, and he backed it up in his review. And that's a lot of F-bombs. I, I just realized I did miss one big point, which is, uh, you know... After Cassian gives his big speech, which is not overly dramatic because of how Diego Luna, you know, delivers it, which is awesome. I mean, really feels like as good of a Star Wars character as you're ever going to get, Diego Luna as Cassian Andor. And he gives the big speech about why he and, and the other former assassins and espionage spies and so forth are, are, are joining her cause against the Alliance's, you know, supposed wishes. And uh, th- they have a few moments in the ship where there's a lot of, you know, pheromones flying. You know, you can't even believe it, you know. I mean, you kind of knew this love story was going to get partially pushed forward, but it's really great to watch. And... And Jin says to him, I'm not used to people sticking around when things go bad. And he just smiles at her and says, welcome home. That's really loaded. I mean, that's really, really loaded. I'm not used to people sticking around when things gone bad. Well, Jin's partially referring to her parents, although it wasn't their fault. She's definitely referring to uh, Saw Gerrera leaving her in the pit or whatever when she was 16 because she was drawing too much attention to herself and to them. But it seems to also be a line maybe about former lovers or friends or whatever. But the fact that he says, welcome home, I just... <sighs> You know, that's a Joss Whedon thing. That's a leap of uh, that's a leap of faith line right there. That's that's a character leap of faith line that has to be delivered based on performance up to that point of those two characters, and, and it just gives me chills. As much as the hugging at the end on on the shore of the beach before the Death Star kills them all, you know, the welcome home from him is. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's as intimate. It's way more intimate than leaning in for a kiss. And that's what I'm always talking about. People, you know, directors and writers resort to sex and kissing and stuff in movies because they don't know how to write them well. 
you know, or just because they're turned on by it. But if you write the right lines and the right bits for your character, you shouldn't have to fall back on it. You know, like if you're going to see sex, it should be to serve a plot point, not just to cover up lack of bad writing. And that's why they didn't have to make out then. And that's why they didn't have to make out at the end, because it was all said without being said in another world, in a better world, we would have a great romance, maybe, but right now we have a mission to accomplish. So he just says, welcome home. I love that. So, okay, here we come to the end. Darth Vader. So before the movie, Adam Dietz and I, in our preview of the movie, said, you know, from one to 10, how much Vader did we expect to say? He said four out of 10. I said five out of 10. And we both agreed, essentially, that we didn't need a lot of Vader and that it would just distract from the entire movie. But what's great is it was more like a two or three out of ten, but way more effective than at least I could imagine. I don't know about Deets. I can't speak for him. So Vader is on Mustafar, indeed, the planet where he was dismembered by Obi-Wan, played a big role in the prequels. Why is the Emperor keeping him there? Well, according to the filmmakers, it's because... The Emperor Invader's free time wants to fuel the rage uh, that has gotten him to that point, which is an amazing statement on the Emperor and the Empire and their entire philosophy. Now, nerds love Vader, and I continue to hear that the thing nerds love a lot, or even the most about this movie, was the Vader stuff, especially at the end. And, you know, I joke about and. uh and my podcast with Adam where we reviewed the movie that, you know, the directors are almost being assholes and that they kill not just all the red shirt good guys, but all the normal primary and secondary good guy characters in this movie. Uh, you know, and, and I predicted that that would happen. I've been predicting that this would happen for a long time, but it's still sad to see. And then, on top of that, they disable the fucking lead Mon Calamari ship. We have to assume that, you know, Mr. Uh, Admiral um, Radis and the other Calamari are killed or tortured and then killed. And then he invades the ship as if to steal the Death Star plans back. Starts using every force power we've seen in every video game. I mean, The Force Unleashed is not a good video game, but in terms of throwing good guys around and killing them in creative ways, Vader follows all of those paths and more. He even opens the door with his lightsaber by stabbing a guy, you know, in the way of the door and opening the door, pulling it out. And then all of a sudden, boop, the Corvette drops out and you know it's Princess Leia. I had suspected that Leia was in this. I had heard little murmurings without too much that maybe Leia was in this. They nailed it. I thought with the CGI, it looked way better than uh, Tarkin, although that had more to do with the fact that, you know, in 1977, and Carrie Fisher had like gorgeously, cl- you know, clean and smooth, pale, you know, unicolor skin, and, and Peter Cushing is already an old guy who 
just died recently, you know, had lots of marks on his face and more definition and, and way more screen time. So that was going to be a problem. And so I have to say Vader was in this the perfect amount because I was totally cool with the cameo on, on the planet and that maybe we'd see him do a little mop up at the end. But to have him use the full on Sith force powers against the rebels and them still escape, you know, with the, the decathlon or whatever, the relay was just a glorious piece of filmmaking. So while I love this movie and it's probably my favorite Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi, uh, as much as I've come to love Force Awakens, cannot make up for horrible 2016, although its political commentary is way more pithy than I think they thought it would be. And Disney has been very, very uh, permissive of its stars, starting with Chris Evans, but going across the line, uh, openly criticizing Trump and what's going on in the political situation. It's interesting to you know, to see uh, or predict and follow specifically entertainment and technology companies who tend to be a lot more liberal than the mainstream, to say the least, to see where they will go. Uh, But Rogue One was a battle cry, you know. Rogue One was a battle cry for the good guys, and everyone I meet who either likes Trump or sympathetic has found reasons to dislike this movie. People I know who are super liberal have found reasons to dislike this movie because it's a big budget mainstream movie. But, you know, for those of us on the left who seek practical solutions but aren't afraid of militancy where it's, uh, you know, where it's needed, um, this movie is really inspiring. If nothing else, than just different people working together as Star Wars has always done to achieve a higher cause. Thank you for joining me. This has been such a bizarre year in 2016. I really appreciate all your guys' support and uh, look forward to an amazing uh, year of podcasts, if not reality, in 2017. I invite you all to join me on uh, Facebook and SoundCloud and Twitter. Um, send me your comments and and uh, your thoughts, and you are always welcome. All you got to do is, uh, you know, drop me a line, tell me some stuff you want to talk about. We talk for a few minutes, and uh, you're on the podcast. So, Bizzlecast is open to all. We are way more Rebel Alliance than Empire. Oh, by the way, check out. Uh, the dude who does the metal interpretations of like awesome like soundtracks and stuff the force theme metalized is fantastic and i i just kept waiting for the force theme of this music and then we got jimmy smith as as you know bail organa coming on and you got boom 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 boom